Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. Here on the Dover Download Podcast, we are continuing to celebrate Dover's 400th anniversary by looking at different decades and talking with policymakers who were active in those decades. Today, we're going to meet with Skip Christianberry, who was involved with the city council in the 90s and an advocate for the community in the 90s. I say that because I, I was able to work with Skip when I first started with the city in the late 90s, and I want to welcome him here and hear what he has to say. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I'm hoping that we can start off with a brief introduction on your own. I don't want to give you your background. If you want to tell the, the listener who you are, what your background is, and, and when you were involved with the council and other boards, because I know it wasn't just the council you've been involved with. I know. I'm, I'm Skip Christianberry, uh, my, also known as Parks. Uh, I grew up in Dover as uh, third generation Dover. My uh, grandparents bought the house that I own now. Uh, father worked for Public Works, retired from there. My mother, um, father bought the house from them, and my mother's uh, was a Dover school teacher. And I, uh, uh, after going to Dover schools, I worked uh, for a time for both the Dover Fire and Dover Police Department before I decided to change the scenery, went into the service, and uh, went in the Navy, and uh, came back out in the late 80s and had an opportunity to buy the family home from my mother at the time and uh, raised my family here, which I, I loved Dover. And... Uh, um, looked forward to that. So I took that opportunity. And once I uh, purchased the home and became a, a full-fledged taxpayer, that's when I decided that uh, I'd want to get more involved in in city government. I grew up in a very active political neighborhood with the uh, McGlaris family, former mayors, state legislators, longtime mm-hmm. county commissioner. So I was immersed in politics as long as I, as long as I can remember. And uh, Did you ever get a word in edgewise? Yeah, with that crew, it was tough because, you know, again, uh, I was like the only Republican on the street, and it's, <laughs> they're all Democrats, and uh, I'm even in a smaller minority now as a conservative, but uh, um, it was growing up uh, near families that were involved in Dover politics that really cared about people, really cared about the community, and have left their mark on the community, and uh, it interested me into to getting involved. In the early 90s, uh, I threw my hat in for uh, ward councilor. I had already, I've done, uh, I've been on the city council. I've been the ward moderator for a number of years. I've uh, filled in a school board seat in Ward 2. I've sat on the zoning, I was on the zoning board. I chaired the committee that built these studios with Mike. So I've been, uh, been involved in a lot of different aspects of the city for probably 20 plus years or so. I've kind of taken a break the last decade or so. Were you the council rep to the planning board, or were you on the planning board as a separate? I was the council rep to the planning board, but I was a citizen, uh, citizen, citizen on the well. zoning board. So I, oh, I sat on the right. zoning board as well. Okay. So I've kind of seen a lot of different aspects yeah. of, of, of the city from different boards and, and commissions. You were Ward 2 counselor for the for the council? For the 90s, and yeah. I, uh, subsequently in 2000, I was uh, I ran at large. That's That's right. You get involved with the council. You, you run for council. What were some of the issues facing Dover at the time? Dover was, we always talk about turning a corner or being in a transition, but Dover was in serious transition 
in the 90s. We had um, we had come out of the 70s and 80s with some massive urban renewal that had occurred downtown, but we still had a lot of empty storefronts and a lot of empty spaces. And a lot of people might not realize, but we were in financial straits um, when I came on the council. We were in the depths of a recession. We had also seen a series of uh, city managers. Right. It was like a revolving was door. revolving door on, on city managers. Our unpaid taxes were had reached a level, uh, I believe, when I came on, it was the year before, was 6 or $7 million, which was significant back then, um, that it had, a ta- it had, had uh, lowered our bond rating. And we were in desperate search of leadership at the manager level. And uh, we didn't seem to have any trouble attracting people for offices and boards of commissions. But there was a lot of concern about where was the city going to go? Um, how were we going to come out of this recession and use all the potential assets that the city had at the time that had been talked about for many years? So I thought this was a, this was a grand opportunity because, one, I was interested in seeing the city move forward and being vibrant again like it had been in the 60s or the 70s when I grew up. But I was also concerned about taxes and my neighbors and people that I knew that couldn't pay their taxes. And it was a lot. I mean, if you if you lived in Dover in the 90s or a homeowner, you knew somebody that was struggling to pay their taxes. Because I think at, at one point, we had like a thousand liens out. Uh, we weren't taking houses, but we had a lot of liens out. And um, I was, like a lot of people, was worried about my neighbors, worried about long-time businesses that were talking about having to leave. And there was some serious issues uh, facing, and I thought this would be uh, um, a great time to get on. And I saw Dover starting to become more partisan at that time. It used to be up into through the 70s and 80s. It didn't really matter what your political party was. You were elected. The, the ward politics was very strong. You were elected because you were a neighbor. But it started the transition uh, in the 90s to um, more of a partisan flavor which continues, I think, on to this day. But I got in when, um, when you could still be a conservative in, a, in, in the most Democratic ward. I, I served two terms as a Republican in Ward 2, which has always been the most Democratic ward in the city by far, still is. But it didn't matter then at the time. People were just interested in their neighbors and the local issues yeah. um, that didn't really tend into the state and the, and the federal issues at the time. So what was the relationships like, or what were the relationships like on the council? Were you collaborative? Were you questioning each other? How was the, how did you build on that? It changed significantly from the 92 council to the 94 council. 92 council, we were fairly split 5-4. When the 94 council, it was a little bit more conservative and it was maybe a 6-3 split. But what was interesting back then is the dynamics were different. Uh, you knew everybody. So on, on both sets of councils, I basically grew up with everybody mm. on those councils. So we knew everybody from the neighborhoods, whatever else. And you could uh, go in and have a strong debate. But in most cases, we'd go out and get a beer after the meeting was over. It was- um, Much more homegrown. Yeah, it was more homegrown, more homespun. And we would spend significant more time on issues. I, I find it interesting now that the, the council meets with a much larger budget and much more scopes of responsibilities, but for much less time, we would meet. And I could remember night after night, we'd go two, three, sometimes four hours at a meeting. And the concern would be, can we get out of here and grab a beer mm. before the bar closed? Because that was, that was the way it was back then. But I guess you could argue that one of the reasons that we could spend so much time at every meeting 
and on the budget at that time was because it was a much smaller too. So you really could go line by line. I, I don't know how you'd go line by line today. Right. But back then, um, you could get into long debates about what color the fire chief's car was going to be, or uh, a fifty thousand dollar expenditure might go two or three meetings. It was uh, more in depth uh, back then. But we, I think that there was more camaraderie. There wasn't the animosity. There was always some animosity. I mean, I used to lock horns with the school board in particular, um, which always seems to be a nemesis of the council and the school board has gone on for decades. But within the council itself, there wasn't a person on there that I couldn't go have a beer or dinner with at that time. So it was a little bit different back then. And at that time, it was the six wards plus three at large. And then from yourselves collectively, you would appoint a mayor. Correct. So I we had a couple of different mayors, Howard Williams, Patty Tor in particular, and uh, I served as mayor pro tem for Patty Tor. And so, yeah, there was some more political maneuvering there because that's how it was done back then. And usually um, it would be, it would favor, tend to favor the at-large councilor that got the most votes. Okay. But however, I squeaked in as mayor pro tem as a Ward 2 councilor, even though I was probably the most, in the 92 council, I was probably the most conservative member. In the 94 council, there was a couple other uh, members that had came on board that were actually more conservative than me. But it was, again, it was a different dynamic on how that played out mm-hmm. back then. And I think in a way, too, it encouraged the, that person that sought the mayor's seat would have to be able to reach out to the majority of the council at all times to scare those votes. Right. So it was a different dynamic to become the mayor back then, too. You didn't get any surprises, I mm-hmm. guess would be the best way to put it. Were the meetings televised at that time? No. Um, but what was different then, what's interesting then, too, though, is everybody knew what was going on because the Foster's Daily Democrat was much more dynamic then, and you couldn't, ha- I mean, their meeting coverage was extensive. Right. Pictures, uh, virtually every ordinance, uh, any any major spending would be covered. And they also extensively wrote editorially about the council. I mean, I, I, I was labeled uh, the gadfly by one of the editors. and uh, But it was interesting because he would call me a gadfly in today's paper, and tomorrow he'd be asking me to go have breakfast down at Javi's. So again, it was, Must be you could have that dynamic with the paper. And I spent many hours um, talking to the editors. Uh, they, were, they would have you come down, explain your positions, and uh, they may not agree with you when they would publish it, but you got your word out. That's how you how you got to your constituents if you weren't visiting them or seeing them in the store or whatever. You were, it was fairly easy to get to your constituents through through the fosses because it was uh, very extensive coverage. I, I got to think, this is my personal opinion, not the city's opinion, but I got to think that it being a morning paper at the time had a different dynamic as well. You know, you, you have meetings at night that are then covered overnight, written about in the morning, and, and it's real news. You know, yeah. it's not word of mouth throughout the day, then you read about it in the paper at night. It's actual, like, right there. Well, it was that, and, and I, I don't want to leave... Oh, it was that evening paper, I'm reversing myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was, yeah. And I don't want to leave out the other the other party that played a significant factor in getting the word out was WTSN, because not only did you always have a Foster's reporter and a photographer, usually at the meetings, but you always had a WTSN reporter. So you'd get up first thing in the morning, and want to see if you made the sound bites right. on WTSN. So um, the public had uh, an ability to really know the next day of what the city fathers were, were doing. And right. um, we've lost that. And I think that's 
a significant factor in the dynamics of today's politics. I, I really miss that. That was, you know, people are always saying, how do we find out? Well, it's tough. Yeah, the, the accountability level has certainly shifted. Yes. You've got this dynamic of, of a council. You've got a set of issues that you're working on. How does the staff play into that at that time? Was there a, a relationship between the council and the staff? Was it? Yeah, it was. And there was some transition with staff that went on during that time in planning, uh, in the police department, uh, the fire department. There was some transition. But I remember it was an open door policy. And I remember coming in and sitting down with the planning director, sitting down with the finance. You're always clear it through the city manager. Sure. You know, and uh, Paul Beach, who was good at that. Uh, most of my time I spent, Paul Beach was a city manager. And I'd just call him up and say, listen, I got some questions about this portion of the um, budget. or what, And he would just say, yeah, just just go down and see a planning sure. director. Go see the, econ- the economic director. And so um, some of us chose to do that quite a bit. Others chose just to work through the city manager. But he was very adept at saying, just go to the source. And uh, public works, same thing. Because we had a lot of issues at that time, it involved the public works department, involved the finance department, involved uh, particularly the planning department and things that we were getting off the ground. So uh, I did enjoy that. I, I, I don't know now how often that occurs or if there's more of a dividing line. Uh, but back then, um, it was a fairly open door policy. So I'll say, uh, and I want the focus to be on you, but just to answer that, I think that there is still that dichotomy. There are those that reach out that say to the manager, I'm going to talk to X, Y, and Z, and they do. And there are others that just hold back. And I think that it's ebbed and flowed over my time. Yes. And I think that it comes down to the relationship building and and where those people feel comfortable, uh, both the staff side and the the council side. And, And I think that it's interesting to see the people you you know are going to be when they come during uh, campaigning and they say, I want to learn, I want to understand X and Y, you know, they're going to be the ones that if they get elected, they're going to want to want and, that knowledge. And I, I agree with that. And I, and it's, and you mentioned something very uh, particular that it's a comfort factor. And that's one of the, I'm the old school type that I believe if you're going to serve on the council or the school board, I really think you need to have skin in the game. You probably should have been involved in the community. You should have done some educational stuff. And I think that when I see those councils or school board members that I know that have done that, whether I agree with them or not, they seem to be more effective or more dynamic. I have a concern as a, as a lifelong resident of uh, people now getting elected to office that just kind of popped into the town two or three years ago, and then you never served on a board, never served on a commission, in some cases never even have gone to a council meeting or spoke prior to the election. And I think we, we've we lost something there because um, I came and I come from a generation that, and a type of Dover that, boy, if you weren't really known by your neighbors, you had no chance. You People would say, what are you running for? Who are you? You know, it's, you know, get on a board, get on a commission or be an activist, stay, stay involved. And I think sometimes it's not just Dover. I mean, I, I see that happening in communities around us. And I think we lose something in that fact that people seem to be in a, a lot of a rush nowadays. And I think we are better served by those that um, have made that commitment because I've seen a number of people uh, in the last 20 years in particular show up 
burn out, and next thing I know, they don't even live in Dover anymore. And so it, it, it's an interesting, interesting to see that. Well, and we're probably thinking of a similar person where I remember as a counselor, they would talk about Central Street, and you would say at the podium, do you mean Central Avenue? And they would say, whatever. Yeah. And like clearly they were not oh, we, a invested gentleman. I have no problem taking the social media and raise my concerns. And uh, the last couple of election cycles, I've raised my concerns about just that. People that are uh, running for, I remember an uh, interview running for school board that didn't know the names of the schools or members that have run for city council that are reinventing the wheel that don't understand. And it's real simple search with, with the internet. You can spend a half an hour on the internet and learn a lot about Dover in the last 30 years. And uh, I, I get concerned when, when I hear that, that they don't know historical events or, or people uh, that are still here in Dover that serve significantly in the community. A resource. Yeah, and the resources, and, uh, which I still use, even though I don't hold elected offices. Still, uh, I still have a cadre of people that, that I reach out and talk to just to stay abreast because I don't have the other, other resources. And um, so I, I still believe that uh, a better Dover can be reached if people just choose to get more actively involved, no matter how they choose to do that, prior to running for office. In your time on the council, are there policies or projects that you look back on and say, wow, I, I am proud that we did that, we, and we made those tough decisions, or we adopted that tough budget, or we promoted that project? Are there things that you look back? Oh, d- definitely. Um, and I, I, you know, I went back and reviewed a few things before before I came in to talk to you. And it's amazing at some of the stuff that that we tackled back then because we had seen the federal government make a significant investment in Dover's downtown in the 70s and 80s. But we were still struggling with, we had talked about the waterfront for about a decade by then. And there was different ideas on the waterfront. There was different ideas about William Pond. But one of the, some of the things that we did in those early 90s was we laid the groundwork for where the waterfront is today. That included uh, opening the new wastewater treatment plant. Later on in the decade, getting the old city barn out of there to open the land up. But the first substantial discussions about where the waterfront was going to go was was on those councils that I were at in the 90s. Same thing with Willam Pond, but a lot of people kind of don't think so much about Willam Pond, but Willam Pond, it's ebbed and flowed, but it's still a significant recreational opportunity that thousands of people use every year. Right. And Willam Pond was envisioned by our councils to get the walking pass off right. the ground to the parking lots. Right, the fish and game relationship was built during that period. Yep, and so we, we tackled that. The, I think the biggest thing that we did during that process, as I discussed earlier, we were in financial straits, and we had just brought on a new city manager, and we struggled, but we made tough decisions over that three- or four-year period to keep the tax rate level or low, which resulted in people being able to pay their back taxes. So by the time I got off the council in the mid-'90s, our delinquency had dropped significantly because people we gave people a, a breathing uh, mm-hmm. There was other things that uh, came about uh, early on. Uh, the bag and tag, we had just shifted the bag and tag when I came on the council and got that program up and running that um, allowed us to go in different venues with with trash collections. And people argue to this day, we still argue about the value of bag and tag and, and everything else, but I think people need to remember that going with bag and tag and asking people to conserve, we have 
because of the forethought of the 90s, we have significantly impacted the amount of waste that we generate. Because people don't like to spend money, so they're much more careful about what they throw out. So whether you like the program or not, it's been a success in the fact that it has changed people's habits and it uh, does help the environment. Yep. And um, so there was, we did, I would say that what we were responsible for in the 92 to 94 councils was we just did a lot of housekeeping and a lot of restructuring. I was going to say during that period is when community services was created out of like six or seven different departments that were all sort of. Right. And a lot of that came from a little report that a lot of people probably don't even remember or forgot about is the Bennett Report. So the Bennett Report was a study that we commissioned after Paul Beecher came on board. We brought in an outside vendor to look at city operations from top to bottom. And it became very controversial because, like a lot of things in government, I've spent my entire life in some form of government. What happened was the Bennett Report was done, and before the council was shown the actual raw Bennett Report, which was what our understanding was, it went to the department heads. And it was modified because we found out later on that there was things that were taken out that we probably, if we had had the opportunity, we may have kept in. But overall, the better report, I think, was a bellwether. It was very significant because out of that was where we looked at fire department operations, the ambulance service, public works, mm-hmm. community services and, and with parks and recreation. Mm-hmm. It made a lot of significant changes that have given us the recreational and the opportunities and, and things that people take for granted. I think a lot of people moving it over, I think we always had all these parks, walkways. They don't realize that was a, there was a lot of struggle in the 90s to get those off the ground because there were, there were folks at that time that just said, just leave everything alone. I remember with the waterfront, there was the argument, just leave it alone. Just leave it grass and let kids go play touch football down there. Don't move anything. But again, growing up on Cachico Street, I remember the smell. I remember the pollution. I remember the sewage lagoons down there, public works garage, the tail end of the dump that was there. What I remember as a youth, the oil spills in the Kachiko River. In the 90s, a lot of that was rectified. The the mill heating plant, the issues with the leaking oils in the river. There was so much that was tackled back then that laid the groundwork for what the work is going on today. If it hadn't happened in the 90s, a lot of what is going on today, uh, if it did occur, it would be at much more expense. And so in that vein, and my background having come up, I first started with community services, but then I worked for planning for the bulk of the career here. I think a lot of the land use policy changes that that, that council started and continued over the next 10 years really set the stage for what we're at now. And the memories I have of working with you early on was your recognition that we had a broad swath. We were industrial, we were commercial, we were residential. You had to balance all of that and recognize, I I remember you saying, look at our seal. The seal talks about agriculture background and industrial background and just the general commercial background. It's not one or the other. You can't swing one way or the other. You have to focus on all three of those. And part of that, the work that we did in the 90s was to enhance and expand the industrial park, which has been a success. You can, again, it's a in my group of friends, I have people that argue on both sides, but the fact of the matter is the industrial park has been a great success and Lord knows what our taxes would be if we didn't have the income from that. The support of the fire department at the time and the expansion um, 
into the ambulance service, and we enhanced that in the 90s. That was a lot of work of Dave Bibbett, the fire chief at the time, but he had to have the support of the council, and we're recognized as having some of the finest medical services available Absolutely. in the state. People would not turn back from that. And obviously, the, there was attempts even during the 90s to say, well, do we go back to private ties in the ambulance? People, people don't want that because of the they get that fantastic service from the, the fire department. Uh, we also put a lot of money into, into public safety, into, into, into the police department, into uh, public works. Because I can remember uh, in the 70s and the 80s, public works, which we called it then, it was beat down trucks, tough to have personnel. Uh, there was just a lot of issues. And um, Dover was was run down, and they just we just didn't have the ability. Uh, now, if you go down to, um, well, we still call it the Taj Mahal, but you go down to the, the public works. Garage Mahal. Garage Mahal. It's, it's, That's what I like to call it. Yeah, it's it, it's something to be proud of. I mean, we have top-notch equipment. We have top-notch people working there. We have great people in the engineering staff. So again, if you were here in the 70s and 80s, and now you see it from here and you you see the difference, it's just hard, I think, for newer residents to come in to explain some of that to them because they just assume it's always been this way. So why are my taxes so high or how did we get here? And uh, the same thing with housing. We were We were concerned even back then with affordable housing, we had a lot of, we had housing. A lot of it was run down. There was significant blight, especially in my ward. Ward 2 has always, well, it's changed. The boundaries have changed significantly now. We have the Gold Coast in there. We have, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We, yeah, when I, but we were growing up, and when I'd say that to people, well, the Gold Coast, you know, that's down off of Washington and uh, down uh, the beautiful Victorians down there. We always called that the Gold Coast growing up. That's part of War II. But uh, when I was representing War II, it was the hardcore part of downtown. It was Broadway and all up and through there. And even to this day, we're struggling to get a lot of that housing up to code. And, right. and uh, But it's slowly coming around. But again, um, and even in the 90s, still Rogers Street area or all around my neighborhood were still large families. So those homes now that are rental units or college units, those were families that still had four or five, six kids living in them. And uh, that transitioned out. But I think that's been a, been a success. We've provided that. Uh, we laid the groundwork so that developers were willing to come in and um, buy up those homes and not let... Dover fall into something like a Berlin fell into where there's a lot of communities in the struggle through the 90s and in the 2000s um, in New Hampshire that are just coming out. We're, we're 20 years ahead of them because we um, we made those changes in the 90s. So are there things that you look back and say, I wish we had tackled or if we had known now, if we knew then what we know now, we could have tackled the following? I think that there's a commitment to, to, to me, the biggest one is the waterfront. Having grown up there and, and seeing that, I think that we should have made a stronger commitment earlier on um, And because it's inevitable what's going to happen down there. But by pushing it off and pushing it off, we've just grown the expense and made it, we've probably made it a little bit more difficult uh, by allowing some growth around there that may clash with the expansion that occurs if we had jumped on in the... T- Probably at the end of the 90s or 2000s, if we had got down there, once we removed the, the public works garage, I think that was the time to go down there and do the infrastructure improvements. I think we waited too long on that. And I think we could have maybe pushed more on that, but it was hard to because that uh, hangover from the 90s recession 
hung tight for a while. Right. But always looking back, I think we could have uh, done that. But other than that, I you know I I think that um, what we did back then, holding the line and uh, and planting the seeds, I don't think I would have changed anything. And and there was a lot of things now that again in hindsight that maybe if we could have done. But but the reality is, if you look back at that time, the money just just wasn't there. Well, I was going to say, I think that's the key thing to remember is if you don't get your fiscal house in order, you can't get your physical house in order. And the the tough choices that are made or might seem tough at the time make sense when you look back and say, we strengthened our foundation. We brought pride into a lot of different areas that weren't a source of pride. Uh, I, you know, I always say that when my parents bought their house in the in the early 80s, they were told, you only go to Dover for Red Shoe Barn and to get beat up. Oh, yeah. And you'd never say that now. And I think you're right. The turning point was that at mid-90s that we got to get our house in order. We got to reset our foundation. And then as you build beyond that and, and build upon that, you see a lot more of what we now call Dover. Yeah. We were also, one of the things that we were, supportive of and we continue to be that I think a lot of people don't realize is back then we didn't have the homeless problem we have now because we had low we called them flop houses mm -hmm. right right down by the fire station we had we had a number of low-end apartment that, that people Rooming houses that could get in with uh, limited income and uh, unfortunately those went away because as we enhanced our building codes, we couldn't allow that. There were there were life safety issues. But I have people say to me, "Well, you you could have done more back then uh, to lay the groundwork for the homeless." But what people forget, and it's hard to remind them, is I think Dover, through the seventies, eighties, and in the nineties, and right on, should be proud of the housing that both the city and the federal government provides through Section Eight, through the uh, housing projects we provide a significant amount of low-income housing opportunities in Dover. Uh, it, it, it's a good percentage of our housing stock, much more so than uh, many surrounding communities, and we're right up there. I mean, it's been a number of years since I've seen a study, but I know that the last time, and it might have been in the late 90s, early 2000s, that at that time, outside of Manchester, we were second per capita in providing low-income. So we provide, and people tend to forget that, that we uh, do that. And so the, I don't think there was much more we could have done then because I don't think anybody envisioned the uh, the issues that are upon us now that we're, we're trying to tackle. But people need to remember that we do that every day. And I think the corollary to that is we want diversity of housing, which we have, but we also want to remind people outside of uh, Nashua, which runs its own transit system, we have more transit opportunity, more variety of alternative ways to get around the community than any other community in the state. And I think those two things go together, help provide ways for people to get jobs that are low mod and to get to those jobs uh, that helps them prosperity. And that was, again, in the early 90s, we were just starting, those were the first meetings where we were really talking about the Downeaster, again, the railroad was going to become a significant factor in where Dover found itself in the turn of the century, which which is what's what's happened. Mm -hmm. We were just talking about that 
in those meetings, I, I I remember when we first started talking about the railroad, it was like the waterfront. People like, it's never going to happen. It's not going to be a success. Nobody's going to ride the train. And it's just the opposite. And if the federal government ever steps up to the plate and does some changes that we need along that lines, it'll be even a greater factor in, in, in Dover, in Dover's future history. But there is, I mean, that's, there's a lot of, again, in the 90s, you had a couple of cab companies. Mm-hmm. And you were lucky if you could get a cab at midnight when you had your last pop and wanted to go home, you were, you were going to wait in line. There was there was really virtually no public transit. When you were leaving Hannon's, yeah. you needed somewhere. Yeah, you didn't go. You, was, you, were, you weren't going to get a cab. And uh, the cabs were uh, pretty seedy, I know, because I drove part-time from one of the companies. <laughs> and I, it was, uh, it was like I said, the... I I look at when I look at Dover in the nineties, I said I'm I'm just so fortunate I was here. I I, I really enjoyed I enjoyed the nineties, um, and uh, I enjoyed being there when we were able to talk about a lot of things we're talking today that they were all just dreams. It was um, we didn't know where Dover was going to go in the nineties. That's where another topic that used to be banged around at the meetings, and it was the Chamber of Commerce was pushing us. Jack's story and and all the old crew at the chamber, they were really saying, this is a time that we need to find an identity for Dover. We need to find something that, because you could see the the out-migration. People were leaving. That's when you started seeing your downtown businesses closing up or leaving, um, except for the hardcore ones that stayed in there. And that's when the chamber started saying, you know, we need to we need to find an identity. What what is Dover now? Dover was a when I was a kid, it was a mill town, shoe shop, very proud one, but that had all gone away. And so we were looking at all those empty storefronts, the empty mill buildings, and the in the mill buildings, Claristat. I again, I remember Claristat when uh, they left, and the talk was when was that going to burn down? That was all everybody said. That and now you go down to One Washington, and I I think if. My father, when he got out of the Navy, worked at Claristat, uh, one of his jobs to supplement his retirement. And I remember going in there when that was a manufacturing company. I, I remember going into the mill buildings when my aunt was making shoes as a little kid. And now you go in there and uh, go into Licky and Chewy's and look, right, this, this is pretty nice. Did it look like this? No. And all it smelled like was linseed oil or the, or the tannery, the smell from the tannery. So we rolled in the 90s. It was like a blank slate. We were, and we, we had a good mix. At the time I was on the council, some of the folks that were uh, much more liberal than me, I'm like, wow, you know, I, I don't know where these people are coming from. But now, 30, 40 years later, I'm like, they, they were on the right path. They knew. And I think it took a balancing act of us that were very conservative about fighting to control the spending. And then those that were liberal that were looking at some of the expansion, it actually worked out in the end. I think that all of us that served on those councils can be proud of. Um, what groundwork that we we laid out there and what Dover's become from that. Good. Well, I appreciate you coming in today. And I'm curious as we wrap up, if you want to tell the listener what you're up to today, if, if anything, and uh, we'll wrap up from there. Hey, well, after almost 30 years working for one government agency or another, I finally finally retired last year. And I do some odd jobs. I, I'm a drone affiliate condo. I got a drone company uh, that I've launched. And... Uh, but I dabble in social media and Facebook. I've served on three city councils. I've served on a school board. I've, I've got decades of volunteerism in Dover. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe you serve your time and let other people move on. But 
I know a lot of people I served with, their attitude was, well, I did my time and I'm out, but I can't be out because I, <laughs> I loved over and um, I, I retired here and I expect to stay here. So my foil is social media. I, I'm very active on Facebook, on city issues in particular that I'm concerned with, the burgeoning issue with uh, drugs and uh, the unhoused in Dover and in the area and spe spending both um, at the city, but I retired from the county and I've got some concerns about spending and, and issues that are going on in the county right now. So with a lack of a, of a newspaper, I'm using social media to get my concerns out there. And I fully recognize that my concerns are tainted by my personal opinion. And I let people, I, I, you know, I, 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 I make fun of myself more than anybody else <laughs> does. But I do believe that I'm trying to provide a source of information where people are saying, wow, we didn't know this was going on in Dover. Um, and I appreciate that there is more and more information on social media from the city of Dover getting out there. But without a the city of Dover, uh, just like I have my personal opinions I want to get across, the city has its opinion of what it wants to get across in the city. And that's, the, that's your job. That's the city's job. And we used to always have that media, and we don't have that anymore. So social media seems to be rising, and I think we'll see more of that. I think we're going to see more social media. We're going to see more homegrown, homespun newspapers like the Rochester Voice. I'm surprised we don't have something like that in Dover. And I've kind of toyed with that idea, okay. maybe going into that respect. I, I'd never say never on running for office again. I've actually thought about this council coming up, but I, I may run again. I, I took a break last time, ran, then I ran for mayor about a decade ago and uh, lost to a very uh, very good mayor. And uh, so I'm proud of that, that effort. And I took another break. But again, I may get involved again uh, down the road, but I will be active and continue to be active in, in social media. I enjoy that. Good. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny because to me, the bottom line is being engaged and you can be right or wrong on an issue. doesn't matter if you're engaged and you're actually participating in, in civics, you're doing no wrong. And so what you're doing, what others are doing, having those dialogues in absence of a, uh, a filter of the media or, or otherwise is a great thing. And I appreciate that you offer that resource. Part of me thinks that I, I should get on social media just to <laughs> See, but I am, I'm the addictive personality type, so I know I'd be on it all the time. Hey, you are, Billy, because so. I've chewed you up a few times. So oh, oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad you haven't read it. <laughs> um, people do that. I, I can get chewed up at home, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate your engagement. I, I love this conversation. I'm really glad you came in today and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Well, thank you for having me. I, I enjoy this, and uh, I hope a few people listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Have a great day. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. This week in 1641, a pivotal moment unfolded in the history of Dover, marking a new chapter in its governance. On December 10th, Captain Thomas Wigan, a figure of notable influence and leadership, was appointed as one of the commissioners instrumental in enacting a groundbreaking government compact. This event heralded a significant shift in the region's administrative landscape. Captain Wigan, already a respected leader, was joined by two other men from Dover, including Edward Hilton, one of the first colonial settlers in Dover. Together, these appointed commissioners were tasked with a mission of paramount importance, 
to implement and oversee the new governance structure which would bring a more organized and unified system to the Piscataqua region. Their roles extended beyond mere administration. They were the pillars of justice and order, acting as associate judges and peacekeepers. The commission, officially established on May 3, 1642, empowered them with judicial and executive authorities akin to those of a magistrate. Their responsibilities included presiding over the court at Piscataqua, ensuring the preservation of peace and exercising lawful power within the jurisdiction. This appointment was not just a mere administrative change. It was a cornerstone in the foundation of orderly governance in Dover. Captain Wiggins' appointment underlines a critical juncture in Dover's history where leadership, law, and order began to coalesce, shaping the future of the thriving community. It serves as a testament to Dover's evolving identity from a fledgling settlement to a structured society. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Have a great week.